welcome everybody back to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on America, China, and the struggle for the 21st century. Uh, this is your host, John Yu. I'm a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm joined by my co-host and permanent presence on the podcast, Misha Oslin. Misha, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I say permanent because I sadly wasn't around for host duties last week, and I missed a great chance to participate in your, your interview with the Assistant Secretary of State. You did. You were, uh, you were gone. You, you were missed. I, I'd have to say we talked much less about food and much more uh, about China which was good. So you talked about interests of you. If you include food, it would have been perfect for our Asian listeners like myself. I mean, no, noodles. no podcast is complete without discussion of food. I mean, no on. noodles last week. <laughs> I think this week, no noodles too. So uh, Misha, I'll turn over to you to introduce our wonderful guest for today. And, uh, Looking forward to a great podcast, as always. Thank you, John. Well, it is uh, it is a pleasure, a real pleasure, to introduce our colleague uh, to join us on the Pacific Century, Larry Diamond. I think most of you who uh, listen to us don't need to hear uh, about Larry because you know about Larry. Larry is not only a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute, for International Studies at Stanford. Uh, he is one of the world's leading theorists of democracy, one of the, one of the leading uh, proponents of, of democracy and studying all the different aspects uh, of democracy from democratic deficit and the democratic recession uh, to how to strengthen democracy and spread democracy. I mean, if I went through all the different things that Larry has done, uh, it would take the whole time of the podcast. So I'm not going to do that, but I, we are going to actually get to some of them as we talk with Larry. But uh, I do want to mention uh, his latest book, Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency, uh, which if you haven't picked it up, you must pick it up because it is uh, one of the key reads for the global trends that we are going through today. But interestingly, even though Larry has spent his whole career, or mo most of his career, much of his career, working on democracy, he has a new target in his sights, uh, and that target is China. Um, Larry has taken the lead at Hoover in moving us to engage with the challenges that China is presenting, not only to the United States, but throughout the international system. And that's really what we want to talk about today. Um, so first of all, Larry, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Misha, and thank you, John. I mean, it's really a pleasure to have you here, in part because uh, even as we've been doing the podcast, things with China have moved very dramatically with uh, the Trump administration, with Congress abroad, if we want to look at the UK and the like, but not least at Hoover as well, where in the space of, of just a year or two, you've put together a really broad-based set of programs looking at China's influence, China's sharp power, and equally significantly, the role of Taiwan. So I wondered if we could start out and you could tell us a little bit about the seminal report that you, uh, that you shepherded and guided at Hoover uh, that came out last year, China's Influence and American Interests, Promoting constructing, uh, Constructive Vigilance. Well, uh, thank you, Misha. This was uh, uh, an endeavor, a working group that brought together about 30 experts on China and uh, foreign policy and national security, uh, most of them Americans, but we had broad participation as well 
from leading experts in countries that have been on the front lines of China's communist united front activities and its efforts to penetrate and subvert democratic institutions um, around the world. Uh, people from Australia and New Zealand, which are literally on the front lines of this, Canada, a number of European countries, and so on. And uh, we looked at a number of different sectors of American society uh, that China has been uh, targeting for inappropriate and, uh, uh, if not always illegal, certainly, um, uh, I'd say, immoral uh, influence. Uh, and trying to uh, shed a spotlight, which is precisely what the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want to happen, on its subversion and pressure tactics. And those were universities and the Confucius Institutes and the Chinese Students and Scholars Association, the mass media, and the efforts to basically take over and propagandize Chinese language media in Australia, Canada, the United States, and so on. Uh, think tanks, uh, um, corporations, state and local governments, and of course the technology sector, where we face um, an ominous danger uh, in terms of China's uh, uh, misappropriation of really theft, there's no other word for it, of our intellectual property, much of it uh, tied to a uh, ambitious effort to modernize the People's Liberation Army, which is the overall Chinese military, uh, and to become uh, the dominant uh, hegemonic power in the Asia Pacific region, and I think ultimately the world. Uh, and so we kind of raised a warning uh, flag, uh, Misha, both conceptually in terms of how to think about this, and in terms of our findings uh, in some uh, specific sectors. But the general uh, warning flag uh, I, I want to stress uh, with two uh, final bullet points by way of leading into this conversation. Number one, the concept of sharp power. Let's get this clear. This is not uh, anything like the efforts that the United States uh, has made particularly in the post-World War II period and other democracies, to try and lead and attract by example, by principle, by open engagement, uh, by sharing uh, values, liberal values or um, uh, values of, you know, solidarity around principles of uh, uh, human freedom and uh, competition and openness and individual dignity. Uh, this is the best sentence I think that's ever been uttered to express it, uh, was by the former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, um, who called it uh, activity that is covert, um, coercive, uh, or corrupting. And usually it's all three. So it's not transparent um, and it's not persuasive. And it tries to buy people, to pressure people, to hide what it's doing. Uh, and uh, this is why it is such an insidious factor and such a dangerous factor, such a dangerous threat to open societies. And the second kind of framing uh, bullet point I'd like to offer, Misha, uh, is that we need to wake up. 
And wake up should not involve overreaction. And it certainly shouldn't involve any kind of ethnic stereotyping. We have to be very sensitive, as I know both you and John are, uh, to the, the distinction of uh, uh, American and other liberal democracies as open, pluralistic, egalitarian societies that don't judge people by their national origin, race, or any other uh, status characteristic. Um, but at the same time, we need to realize that China has a strategy of trying to penetrate, co-opt, pressure, and subvert our democratic institutions, and to control the narrative about China, and to disempower our ability to respond uh, to their I'd say grand global strategic plans for, I'm often reluctant to use this word because it sounds so grandiose, but domination. I think they want China to be the middle kingdom globally now, uh, the center of um, the human universe. Uh, and that requires what we call constructive vigilance, which has a balance of pushing back, monitoring and awareness while a certain sense of proportion, restraint, and pr respect for due, due process and the rule of law. So can I ask you, and it's one of the best, I mean, honestly, in terms of a, of a capsule summation of what we face from China, you know, it's one of the best um, and clearest explanations. You're founding co-editor of the Journal of Democracy, a senior consultant at the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, you've run uh, Stanford's Center on Democracy Development and Rule of Law. What took so long for the democracies to, to understand this? Why? Well, why did it, was it not clear earlier or was it that the nature of the challenge changed? Well, um, one of my favorite quotes uh, that I've encountered uh, in um, my belated and very uh, inexpert study of uh, modern China uh, post-communist uh, revolution 1949 has been um, my encounter with this uh, ancient phrase uh, it dates well before the communist era, uh, but that was embraced by Xi Jinping. And I think the literal translation is, hide your brightness and bide your time. It's often been understood in Communist Party aphorisms and doctrines as, hide your strength, bide your time. For um, maybe 40 years <laughs> uh, since Deng Xiaoping came to power in 2019, uh, China, or uh, let's say 35, I'd say, from the time that Deng Xiaoping began to reconstruct uh, the nature of Chinese communist rule and launch this unbelievable period of economic and, uh, you know, uh, social modernization of China, um, uh, China did hide its strength and bide its time. I'd say pretty much until Xi Jinping emerged as the paramount ruler of China after ascending to the general secretaryship of the Communist Party and then uh, the presidency around 2012. And so we thought that China could be, in the words of our former Deputy Secretary of State, Robert Zellick, 
a responsible stakeholder, that engagement could work to draw China in to a peaceful rise to global superpower status. And we were lulled into this um, because we wanted to believe it. I think it was worth a try. Uh, there's no reason to gratuitously uh, stumble into a new Cold War if we can avoid it. And because um, China was using stealth methods of trying to steal our intellectual property, steal militarily relevant technology, influence people, buy up Chinese language media, co-opt politicians around the world and so and influence makers and commentators and so and control the narrative and so on and so forth. And it took a long time to see all the pieces come into into place. Thank you for your kindness in citing our 2019 uh, book that Hoover published last year on China's influence and American interests. I do think it helped to ring the bell, but there were many other things as well that were doing that. And one of them I want to call out, which I think was enormously important, was the January 2018 report, which had a deep impact on me of the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, DIUX, now DIU. Uh, headed by Michael Brown, the report by Mike Brown and Pavneet Singh, uh, China's Technology Transfer Strategy. And this lays out the cynical, comprehensive, methodical, audacious, multi-level, multi-decade campaign to steal uh, uh, Western and primarily American technology for the purpose of modernizing the People's Liberation Army and eventually achieving, which I think uh, they think they're on their way to doing, military supremacy and freedom of operation in the uh, Asia-Pacific region and maybe eventually globally. Larry, I'm a, I, we've never met in person, but I'm a big fan of your early work. So I, as a, I was a, I was in a Sam Huntington class on democracy and your book with Linz and Lipset was required reading. Yeah. And then I had Daniel Bell too, and he's a big fan of this. So I wanted to ask you to put on your, um, uh, your, your student of democracy hat with your China hat at the same time and ask, uh, where was China ever going to be on the path towards being a democracy like the ones you studied in Latin America, or did it, did something happen that caused it to veer off path to where it is now? Or was there really never a lot of possibility that China would grow into a democracy as its economy grew at the rate it did? Well, um, John, I have very, thank you for your, <laughs> your generous no, I love, it's, it's a great pleasure to meet the uh, author. You know, uh, it's a, we try to do that on the know, podcast. <laughs> I loved Sam Huntington, uh, and I think he was one of the great political science uh, giants of the last century. I did like his book, you, you can probably imagine The Third yeah, the Wave, waves, yeah. uh, rather yeah. more than I liked his book, The Clash of... Yeah, clashes, which for my taste was a little too culturally deterministic. And um, I have always believed, uh, and in contrast to many people who once believed but no longer do, uh, that China could become a democracy. And I would say even still today will become a democracy uh, 
you know, even in my lifetime, which is a, becoming a bit of a bet on my longevity. But um, let me say why. First of all, you'll recall there was a period after the fall of the imperial dynasty in the early 20th century and the dawn of the Republican era and uh, uh, the three principles of the people of Sun Yat-sen and the dawn of the Republican constitution, where at least there was a democratic vision. And a, a constitution with, I'd say, substantial, though rather novel, democratic properties that was uh, authentically Chinese. Secondly, I only recently learned about this in reading John's, um, uh, John Pomfret's remarkable book, which I recommend to everybody, um, on the history of uh, relations between the US and China, the beautiful country in the Middle Kingdom, that one of the authors of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, after World War II was a delegate from Republican China, um, a human rights or constitutional uh, law professor, I think, or thinker anyway. And um, I don't think, uh, and I know the two of you don't think, that liberal values or ideas um, have you know, a cultural stamp on them. They may have a certain historical emanation from the European Enlightenment and Scottish Enlightenment thinking and so on and so forth. But they've got many points of origin and cultural embrace, let's say. Um, they, they work very well in Asian yeah, countries. Yeah, and, you know, see. I think the most effective uh, pushback to Lee Kuan Yew's, um, you know, more culturalist thinking that Asians aren't really ready for or suited for democracy was the reply that Kim Dae-jung gave <laughs> to uh, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, I think before Kim was elected president of South Korea. But anyway, um, and I look at the uh, Asian Barometer Survey, which I've been associated with since its founding about 20 years ago, and a lot of other public opinion survey data, and I don't see a cultural stamp on this. Um, the second point I'd make is that I'm confident that Chinese culture is not an obstacle to developing a successful democracy because we have a Chinese society in the world that has now become, A, one of the most liberal democracies in the world, namely than the successor uh, to the Republican vision under Sun Yat-sen, uh, the Republic of China, Taiwan, and that B, as a liberal democracy, you both know, has had one of the most successful records in the world. Indeed, the most successful record of probably any country over 10 million people of managing the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, uh, Chinese can do it. Um, the problem yeah, yeah. is uh, the communist Chinese system and the communist Chinese propaganda. And I think the, so I think that two dynamics, John, are clashing now, uh, or two logic logics. One is the logic of modernization and globalization, which I do think is broadening and promoting of liberal values. And I did see in the Asian Barometer uh, survey data over uh, several waves some trends toward greater embrace over time, particularly by young people in China 
of liberal values. And we've all seen and engaged uh, Chinese students who come to study in the U.S. and have their eyes opened up by, um, you know, the democratic uh, example, let's say. The problem now is that um, you've got a more ruthless and Leninist in particular a communist system in China and a more comprehensive and um, ambitious uh, program of ideological and informational propaganda and control, which unfortunately I think is having an impact in um, shaping the thinking of uh, Chinese people, denying them access to information, only portraying the United States as drowning in racial chaos and, uh, you know, uh, an uncontrollable pandemic and spinning a certain narrative. And, you know, the Great Firewall is not perfect, but uh, it is an obstacle in the near term uh, to change and um, uh, freer flows of information in China. Let me follow up, uh, Larry, on that, what you said. Um, you said, you, it was interesting, you said, in, in your lifetime, though, you think China could become a democracy. I was curious, how would, how would that happen? Or would you, uh, given uh, the reality of how the Chinese Communist Party, as you said, has installed this uh, high-tech surveillance state and a pre political oppression, uh, how, how would you see the transition? You're a student, right? You studied Latin American transitions yeah, from authoritarianism to democracy. So uh, I think the real uh, comparison here is not with Latin America. It's with Central and Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, obviously. Um, the reason why I say this is I think the study of Central and Eastern Europe in particular um, and um, the reason why I think uh, these countries may have some more interesting parallels to China than the Soviet Union is that they were somewhat more engaged with the world, somewhat more economically developed and so on. There was a lot of falsification of preferences. We know that. And I think there is significantly more falsification of preferences going on in China now than we can measure or be aware of. And I will just say, of course, anecdotal evidence, uh, we always want to be cautious about it. But when you get elites out of China and they can unburden themselves, elites from a lot of walks of life, business, think tanks, intellectual life, uh, technology sector, and so on, they know there's something wrong with their system, something repugnant about their system. And I think that it has been dramatically intensified by Xi Jinping and his regression away from greater pluralism and the rule of law and his negation of the institutional progress that China had made since Deng Xiaoping, for example, with the imposition of term limits for Chinese presidents and Communist Party leaders. Uh, and uh, I think Xi Jinping is hated by many people within the Chinese Communist Party who probably would dare not reveal this to even most of their friends because of fear. Um, I think that um, there's an aspiration for something better and more open, if not purely democratic. I think the principal 
pillar of legitimacy of Chinese Communist Party rule has been the 8 to 10 percent pace of annual economic growth for 40 years, which we know is slowing down now. China is facing other governance challenges with the aging of its population. I think it's headed toward a challenging time in terms of performance legitimacy. And I think that this could get the Chinese people at the elite level and otherwise to begin to rethink uh, what kind of rule they want in China if, and this is the big if, we can avoid uh, stumbling into either a pure Cold War with China, which Xi Jinping is able to manipulate into a nationalistic response against the evil United States, or even more so, which is my greatest worry about um, world order in the next 20 years, and I think is vastly underestimated by almost everybody in the United States, except probably the two of you, the possibility of an actual real war, military conflict between China and the United States, um, most likely over Taiwan. Larry knows, I mean, Larry and I've talked about this a great deal and, and he knows we're, we're completely on the same page, but the last part that you just talked about, Larry, this, this question, and, and one of the hardest, of course, of, of how do you change preferences potentially inside China that can effectuate political change. We, you know, privilege ourselves, assuming that we are part of that equation and we can make a difference. Is there a role that democracies can play in that process? And should they be playing it together? I mean, you're, you've been writing, uh, you know, at Stanford, even though you've uh, put put a you know collected around yourself an eclectic group of people, but do we need to be working with Japanese and Indians and Brits and whomever else and Poles and the like? What is the role that we can play, and and does it really need to be our own united front, so to speak? So um, I think you've answered your own question in a subtle and um, predictably clever way. So let me build on the first part of that. Um, we must not only preserve, but strengthen and invigorate our alliances globally, but now in the Asia-Pacific region. And it begins, uh, uh, you will <laughs> not disagree, I know, with the U.S.-Japan alliance, but, you know, uh, obviously the U.S.-Republic uh, of Korea alliance, try and nurture back uh, uh, and lure away the Philippines from a drift toward China, uh, strengthen the budding forms of cooperation. It's never going to be a formal alliance with India. And, you know, you can play that out. I want to play it out for the moment, Misha, in the following sense. Um, I believe there is a very significant danger. I think it is the single biggest danger or black swan event that foreign policy and national security thinkers in the United States are underestimating in the next five to 10 years of an overt, audacious, crushing, lightning fast Chinese uh, PRC military invasion and conquest of Taiwan. Um, I think they are preparing for it. I think that there is a growing belief among um, political and military leaders in the PRC that the United States would not come to Taiwan's defense. I think there is a growing belief that because of the chaos and weakness of the United States and the West and the 
different kind of signals of lack of resolve that they might get away with it. I think the more they get away with the conquest of Hong Kong, which as you know, is well on its way to being completely crushed in a slow moving kind of daily parade of outrages, um, the more they may be emboldened. And um, if uh, Xi Jinping were to do this, it would not only be, I think, um, the worst alteration of um, international order and sovereignty, uh, maybe since World War II, certainly since 1991, but um, it would create a, uh, now I want to use the word fascist style rallying uh, of nationalism around Xi Jinping for his success in, quote, uniting the motherland. And it'll just be bad, bad, bad for Asia, obviously for the 23 million people in Taiwan who have come to love freedom, uh, and for um, the people of mainland China. So I think we need to do everything we can to foster alliances and deploy strength in the Asia Pacific to preempt any illusions that we would allow this to happen and therefore to, uh, to keep it from happening. But beyond that, I would say we also need to be, so I hear I embrace kind of Teddy Roosevelt, talk softly and carry a big stick. We need to be cautious about doing gratuitous things that will stoke Chinese nationalism and maybe provoke them into doing or lure them into doing something rash just out of anger, outrage, or nationalist desperation. And that's why I want to avoid using the term Cold War. I want to be cautious about, you know, misleading the PRC into thinking that we're subtly encouraging Taiwan independence. It's a very fine line that we need to walk. You actually anticipated the, the next set of questions I was going to ask you, which was about specifically Taiwan and, and then Hong Kong and the rapidity with which after the signing of the um, of the uh, the national security law that that uh, the, the freedoms have just I mean the arrest of Jimmy Lai whom you know well and we all know well at Hoover it's just happening so so quickly let me let me ask let me end with a a question for you a more provocative provocative one which is and, and you'll know that I'm playing devil's advocate what if all a lot of this uh, that we're talking about in terms of going forward is actually a big bluff on the part of Beijing, that that they don't have the strength to uh, to take over Taiwan. It, it militarily, it, it can be somewhat difficult. Uh, that they actually know that it would wreck their relations with the world. That there is much more internal uh, opposition, as you hinted at, to Xi Jinping. Uh, that that really they're they're trying to to win without firing a shot and get us to more or less back off and surrender uh, our position in in Asia. Do you think, because that's an argument you hear, do you, do you think there is any legitimacy to that? And, and if so, then, then what should be the U.S. the U.S. policy in order to play what we may have a stronger hand than we think we do? Well, um, <laughs> they sound harsh, but to me, it's got the ring yeah. of Neville Chamberlain, 1937, exactly. uh, and him flying back from Munich saying, 
we have peace in our time. All that Hitler wants is the Sudetenland uh, and the Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia than it was. Let's give it to them and you know, then we'll have peace in our time. And um, uh, I hope they're right uh, that the PRC is bluffing. Um, but um, I think the notion uh, that the PRC is bluffing is a really uh, dangerous illusion. Um, we, were th we thought they were bluffing in Hong Kong, and it turns out they weren't. Now, they didn't march troops into Hong Kong. Uh, I think they've actually been much more clever than that because it's a slow-moving day-by-day incremental strangulation of freedom in Hong Kong. But um, if you look at the way that they are modernizing their military and um, uh, some of their abilities uh, for warfare, um, uh, I don't think this is a bluff. I'm not saying they will invade Taiwan, but they are preparing to do so. Uh, and uh, about this, I think there can be little doubt. And, um, you know, maybe they don't feel confident they could fully pull it off today. But every year, um, this is, a, you know, a, a statement that's beyond dispute. The gap in military, the balance of military power between the mainland and Taiwan grows the ability of um, the PRC to hold our aircraft carrier uh, battle groups at bay with precision guided devastating uh, missiles becomes greater. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the ability for them to um, argue in internal military and political circles that they could do this and get away with it becomes more plausible. And as our own beloved uh, colleague George Schultz uh, keeps saying, uh, the best way to deter this kind of bad behavior uh, is to, um, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, have a strong uh, defense, a strong deterrent. Uh, and this is why the eagle uh, of the American symbol has uh, arrows in one claw and um, an olive branch in the other. So that's the kind of balance we need. And I think without it, um, uh, the risks become more, the risks become significantly greater. So we don't do, even if, uh, we'll never know for sure if there's no war <laughs> and no tragedy, whether it was um, strength and deterrence that achieved it or whether they were bluffing all the time. But without strength and deterrence, we run a very significant risk that the theory of bluffing will, as I expect, turn out to be illusory. Well, it, it's ironic. It almost gets us back to old, you know, game theory constructs from the Cold War, not you know, not that this is the new Cold War or Cold War II or whatever we want to call it, but the same question of trying to understand decision-making calculus and how much we're feeding in, how much we're changing, how much we're simply reactive. But I think that's actually a perfect 
place to stop, which is a, a ringing clarion call uh, to to uphold the values that that we've been upholding for 70 years uh, with, as you said, the non-coercive partnerships uh, that we've had. Again, I just before we sign off, I just want to commend again to to our listeners. If you haven't looked at the book that that Larry uh, spearheaded uh, last year, it is on the Hoover site, I, I believe still, at least the original report is, but I think the book is. Um, uh, please take a look at that. There are other things to look at. There excellent work that was done uh, by um, the U.S.-China Commission on the United Front Work Department, if you're interested in that. Larry mentioned the DIU report, uh, which I think was called the Crown Jewels report. It's a fantastic report. China's uh, technology transfer strategy. Yeah, the, the technology transfer strategy. Um, maybe there was a second one that was called the Crown Jewels, looking at the same theft issues. So it's all out there. It's being pieced together. Um, there's a lot more work to come clearly from the new initiatives, uh, Larry, that you've started, which is the Sharp Power Project and Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific. And so um, would love to get you back as, as we go through those projects, as they begin to develop and talk more about that, uh, because I, it, is, it is a sea change in where we've been for the past 40 years. So thank you so much for taking some time and talking to us at the Pacific Century. And uh, we will be watching everything that's coming out of, out of the, the work that you're doing. Okay, thank you both for having me. Thanks, Larry. It's been great. Great conversation. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.